Hello and welcome to the CEO interview. My name is Jean-François Manzoni. I'm the president of the International Institute for Management Development, better known as IMD. I have been studying, teaching and consulting for leaders for the better part of the last three decades. One of the benefits of my job is that I get to meet and discuss with some of the world's most interesting and successful business leaders. In this podcast series, you are going to have a chance to meet them too and to hear some of their insights and advice. In every episode, I will be speaking with a different CEO. We will talk about their business, their career, their successes and their challenges, and some of the lessons they have learned so far. We will hear what makes them tick, how they define success, and we will try to understand what got them to where they are and what is keeping them there. In today's episode, I am delighted to introduce you to a very successful and inspiring entrepreneur, Mr. Jordi Cole. Jordi, you're Dutch. Uh, you've spent almost 30 years building and developing several companies in many industries, but particularly IT and tech companies. In particular, there was this company called Infotech that you took from a modest 65 million and built it into a 1 billion uh, uh, euro sales company. Now, I know you're no longer involved in day-to-day. -day. Mainly, your activities these days are as a board member, often as a chairman of the board, as well as an investor and as an advisor. You run your own investment group called Iron Asset Management, and you're also very active in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, among many activities, you're on the board of a major hospital group with more than 4,000 healthcare professionals, and you're also the founder and the chairman of a charity called IT for Kids. A very successful and busy life, and I have a number of questions for you again. Thank you for making the time to be with us. Thank you, Jean-François. So you've had many successes over the years. Uh, if we were to pick one that really stands out among this list of success, it would be, I think, Infotech. Uh, you grew the company remarkably. Again, I said from 65 million to a billion over about 10 years. Two quick questions. One, why were you so successful? What were some of the key elements of the, of the, of the secret sauce? And two, how did the exit come about and how did you manage changing your relationship with the company? Yeah, good questions. Um, first of all, when I came in, I, I saw the huge potential of that company. And then the challenge is obviously to uh, convince your uh, fellow uh, partners in the business. And I really think that I picked my battles over time. One of the important things uh, we did was we innovated the business. We really transformed the business. We were in some way the front runners in the refurbishing of IT equipment, sometimes too soon, uh, and sometimes maybe even uh, too late. The, the important things uh, of building this business was, uh, amongst others, internationalizing the business. Funding was really important, figuring out how to fund it, how to get banks involved, or, or in another company uh, I run, uh, getting mezzanine funds on board, which I think sometimes can help you excel uh, the business take some risks, uh, calculated risks, obviously. And uh, it was very important is to surround yourself with the right group of people. 
without the people, I could not have done it. Uh, we really picked the right persons in some countries, which helped us uh, accelerate the business. Now, you mentioned something very interesting. You said sometimes too early, sometimes too late. Tell us a little bit about this, because yeah. there's often a very fine line huh, between being too early or too late. Yeah, the, we, we were one of the early companies in refurbishing IT equipment, and uh, which is now uh, hot. It's a trend, circular IT sure. uh, refurbishing. And, and we claimed that, let's say that domain, pretty early on, but it was too soon. We spent quite a lot of money on uh, innovating our product, really having a top quality refurb product, where customers were not really interested in a top refurb product. So it actually costed us money and margin. Uh, but in the long run, it obviously helped us. Uh, that was one uh, important example. We also, uh, sometimes we were too early in a country okay. where some countries didn't really care about circular IT. Right. Um, so we opened an office and noticed that, you know, didn't really pay off. Those are, I think, two examples of being too early. And when you, you chose that business, you said, I saw the potential. Did you see the potential in the context of a, a visionary projection in the future that circular economy would become more of an issue? Or was it, was it more, hey... In the IT segment, there is a segment for this. So how much was the sustainability foresight part uh, of this discussion? Uh, Two-folded. Uh, on, on one hand, to be honest, uh, uh, the margins were like 60%, 70% at those okay. days. So, so it was a good business. It was a good business. Okay. It made a lot of sense. At the same time, cloud computing was coming up. Okay. And because of cloud computing, you don't need a lot of processing power anymore on your desk. Uh, so for me... Uh, Tech-wise, it made sense to have a previous model where you can still work uh, on that previous model. Okay. You didn't need the processing power. At the same time, we also understood that we're doing something good for the economy. Uh, um, you give a product a second life. If you can't give it a second life, you take, uh, you take the parts out, you sell the parts, right. you make money again. And then the last step was actually... Uh, you know, destroying the product, but using the, the raw uh, substances. So we did do something back for society, but in all honesty, we saw that it was, uh, was not potential. Okay, so initially it was more of a good business opportunity, yeah. good margin, and also you're <coughs> saying this kind of product will remain quite value-creating for people because we will need less uh, computing power. And then as time passes, maybe the environmental dimension picks up more importance in the, uh, yeah. in the discussion. And in that sense, we were too early. Okay. So we were claiming that very early on that, you know, uh, if you build a, a mobile phone, it takes a thousand liters of clean water. If you use a, another phone, a secondhand phone, you don't need to use a thousand liters of water. So we were working on those okay. parts of our positioning, but most companies didn't really care about it at that time. But nevertheless, at some point, they started doing, and, yeah. and, and, and I guess this was part of your expansion. Now, at some point, you started exiting the business and selling parts of it. Um, how did this come about, and how did you manage your changing role versus this company, which was, I don't want to say your baby, but which was, you know, really something that you had built? Yeah, we sold, or I sold it in uh, three times. So in, uh, in 2014, it was not really a sale, it was a management buyout, but we took 
considerable amount of money off the table as the as the founders uh, and owners. And 16, we sold for the first time to private equity, which was a deliberate decision because uh, we knew we needed to do acquisitions to be able to grow uh, and to survive actually uh, the competition because the competition was getting more intense and we wanted to diversify into other markets. So there was a, a deliberate attempt to get someone on board to help us fund the business okay. going forward. We sold last week uh, part of the business, uh, which is called Central Point, which is a value-added reseller arm of Infotech. Um, that was obviously also one of the steps. And with all of those steps, my role changed. And it, it mostly changed in 2018 when I uh, resigned as the CEO and I became uh, a non-exec. And that obviously comes over time with, uh, yeah, I think sometimes emotions, especially if you've been uh, an owner. And uh, I did manage that, I think, quite okay, but uh, you need to understand when you sell it and you move into another role that you're, yeah, that it, it doesn't come without emotions. It comes with emotions. And being able to deal with that is uh, pretty important in that process. And you manage that process consciously, you're saying? Yeah, because I already had a plan, actually. I think some people sell their company uh, without having another plan. When I sold it, uh, and I sold it you know, with an idea behind it to get a private equity firm on board. Okay. I already had a plan of changing my role as well, moving into a non-executive role, starting up my iron asset management uh, firm and investing in other companies. So I had a plan, which can keep you occupied doing right. other stuff. Right. right. But you can also sit at home and only you know, be a board member of your own company. Then I think it can be uh, a little bit more challenging if someone takes over your previous role. Now, let me go back. Further in yeah. your career, you started off as an officer training in the Royal Dutch Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, how important was that in your career and in your life? Are there some key insights or some key lessons that you got from this formative part of your career? Yeah, it did for me quite a lot, actually. So it helps you to be disciplined, structured. They put you under quite a lot of pressure. So you get used to being in a VUCA world, uh, staying calm, uh, grounded, balanced, uh, sometimes making quick decisions and sometimes taking in a little bit more time to make decisions. Um, you also learn to delegate uh, because people have sometimes the idea that a lieutenant or a captain, you know, he tells you to go right, everyone goes right, but it doesn't work like that. You use the sergeants and the sergeant majors and uh, the corporals, and you actually give them a lot of responsibility. You know where you're going to go to, but they tell you how to go there. And so it is all about delegating. So I think I learned at a pretty young age to get the team on board uh, on a plan. You also learn that if you, know, you are, let's put it in this way, under fire, there's a lot of stress in your company, that if someone needs to call the shots, then it's actually you calling the shots. Um, because you cannot do that with everyone at, right. at the same time. And, uh, and I've been always very clear about we do things together, but if we don't agree, then it's up to me to make the decision, and I want you all to be on board. Those are, I think, some of the things I took with me uh, from those first two years. Now, one of the other continuous threads in your life and career is the importance of sports and physical fitness. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, that's maybe also part of the, the military background where <clears throat> they, they teach you to be fit, both physically and mentally. And, uh, and sports helps a lot with that. You also learn to deal with losses in sports. 
because you cannot win everything. You need to, you also learn to, to you know, use your team uh, to win games or to eat clean uh, and keep your head clear. So nowadays for me, it's very important to stay active. Uh, I know that you need to take your time to sleep and to recuperate. Uh, I try to eat very clean uh, and especially to keep a, a clear mind. Now, let me ask you a few questions about your entrepreneurial career, if I may. Uh, first, you're a serial entrepreneur and executive with many interests. In your opinion, what are the key attributes of a successful entrepreneur? What does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, first, I think uh, the question is what the definition of success is. Okay. And, uh, and I think everyone determines success themselves. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs uh, out there. And, and in their way, they are successful. Huh? It's not my definition of success, okay. but... Uh, so you don't have to be a billion-dollar company to be no. a successful entrepreneur? No, you could, uh, you, could be, uh, okay. you could have a small company with 10 employees. You make a decent living. You have fun. Uh, you could put food on the table for 10 other employees. And that's it. And that's their success. Uh, I, I do think that the, you can also ask the question a little bit different. What are a lot of entrepreneurs not? I do think that a lot of entrepreneurs are not the best leaders. They're not the best managers. Sometimes they're not the best communicators. Uh, they went into this business sometimes also because it, you know, it passes on from father to son or from mother to daughter or from mother to son. Um, but what I do think is very important if you want to build a bigger business is, uh, first of all, you need to really understand yourself uh, very well, understand what you're good at and not good at. <clears throat> and then surround yourself with people who fill those gaps. I think it's very important to constantly educate yourself, uh, to make steps. Most entrepreneurs are also good at having a vision where the world is going, uh, but then you need to execute it, otherwise you stay hanging in, uh, in vision. And what I said earlier on, it's, it's super important to get the funding in, and some get stuck because they don't understand how the funding or the financing world works, uh, which is something I figured out pretty early on. How can I find, finance my business? How can I grow it? What kind of ways are there to do it? It's also, and it's part of education, but it's also part networking and experience. And I've done that now quite a lot of times, and I've seen with other entrepreneurs that that's the reason why they get stuck. So it sounds like you're making a clear difference between in a way, we could call the startup phase and then the scale-up phase. Yeah, that's where I think I'm at least a little bit different, but there are more people like me, obviously, because I came from a corporate background. I came from the military, I came from a corporate background. I did start a few small companies, but I learned that that was not for me. Okay. So I'm definitely not so a startup guy. So you're more a scaling-up guy than a startup guy. Yeah, so I'm more the person who comes in and then helps the entrepreneur you know, in a mid-sized company to really fast forward if I think that we can fast forward it and I think that I can add value. And, and, and going through these growing phases and growing pains is something I've experienced several times. Also, you know, changing your own role and with growing pains which come with changing your own role. And that's where I think, uh, that's where I, I think I can add value, uh, which is a completely different thing than starting a business. What do you look for? to determine this is a business that I think we can grow, we can scale? Yeah, there's a few things I, I, I look for. Obviously, we have a, a sheet with, you know, things you need to tick the box in. Uh, but most important for me is 
I tried to figure out, can I or we and my team uh, add value? If I can't add value, I'm not going to invest. Okay. Then the second thing is, okay, I can add value, but does he or she let me add value? Uh, and some entrepreneurs won't let you uh, for whatever reason, eh? right. because they, they say they, wanna, they want you in, but they really they want your money, but they don't want your added value. And um, my added value or our added value is mostly on the commercial side, having a vision where the market is going to, uh, helping with marketing and sales, business development and funding. Uh, I always need people to do the operations. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, investment firms differ a lot. And it, but it starts with where do we add value? And I, I focus on health, fitness, wellness and sports. IT and telecom and everything around human capital, which is also education or gamification of learning, uh, because I do think that I have experience there and I can add value there. We look at certain sizes. It needs to be from one to five million EBITDA. It needs to be at a certain growth phase. There needs to be, let's say, a somewhat mature management team. Um, but again, the, the, the most important thing is if I can't add value, I'm not in. So we often say that strategy is about where do we play and how do we win? And it sounds like you have a very clear sense of where you ought to play and how you win. Yeah. Okay. Now, you've worked with private equity firms over the years. Private equity firms are often criticized for being overly short-term driven, gutting businesses. Yet, interestingly, when, when you brought one of the PE firms, you said we wanted to expand. So tell us about your experience of PE firms and what makes a great PE firm. Yeah, I've experienced many PE firms, um, sometimes only in the early phase, sometimes uh, in, in case of Infotech uh, for quite some time, which has been, uh, in my view or our view, successful, that cooperation. But they come at different uh, forms and sizes, and which is something as an, if you choose to sell your company or to a private equity firm, you nearly need to understand where are they coming from, what is their culture, where do they add value. As an example, some are very consulting driven, ex McKinsey, ex Bain. For me, that would have been great because I like uh, uh, research, I like statistics, I like facts. So I'm not, again, maybe the tip, not the typical entrepreneur. Some entrepreneurs don't really like that. They do a lot of things on gut feeling. Right. So if you then sell your company to a PE firm who wants to bring that in, it might become very challenging. Some are typical uh, with a banking background, so it's all about financing. Great if you need that, because if you haven't figured that out, that would be super interesting. And some are very good at M&A. So if you want to do M&A and, 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 and you don't have that experience, it might be smart to sell it to a private equity firm which has done that a lot. That I think is very important. What is also very important is the people. So it's not about the firm, it's about the team who's on your company. And if that team changes over time or that partner goes away, you start all over again. That's why I think it's very tricky. And they have different statistics or, or let's say KPIs themselves. We should not forget that. They want to make a certain IRR, they want to make a certain money multiple. And for me as a, as a let's say as an investor, I'm not always looking at a certain money multiple or an IRR. Actually, I'm not at all. Obviously, I would like to make a profit uh, or a return, but I'm more about when it's the great time to jump ship or jump train. And that could be where your money multiple is only two. It could be where it's two and a half. 
But it's, for me, it's more important. This is the time we need to jump now. We need to sell now because that train is only going to come by maybe once or twice. But when you say it's time to jump now, I, I hopefully it doesn't mean because I can see that this train is about to derail. Sometimes it could be, yeah. but other times is it we're no longer the right owner for this? Or, or how no. do you make that decision? No, it could be derailing, obviously, okay. but then it, it should be, you know, we need to sell because they're going to help us to make the next step. And when we sold to the private equity firm Altor in, in 2016, I had the clear idea that I wanted to do M&A and I wanted to buy two specific companies, right. which was Central Point and uh, Scholte Aarwater. And I could not get uh, my other partners to invest in it. So I needed the private equity firm right. who was going to buy into my strategy plan and actually help me finance that business. Which we did, and then you know the business. So you wanted to doubled. jump on another S curve, yeah. and you needed them. Now, Jordi, over the years, you have often pursued several projects simultaneously, which yeah. clearly suggests that at any point in time you were doing more than one full-time job. What are the, the secrets, if any, to your productivity or, or to your efficiency? Yeah, specifically around productivity, I don't travel a lot. I do travel, but I, I, I try to get everyone into my office. Uh, if we go somewhere, I don't drive. I've, been, I've not been doing that for a long time, so I can work. Um, I was doing virtual business, so let's say online business, already in 1999, where you had still your, your modem, and, uh, and I was already working on my email at that time. So virtually working for me is not an issue. Um, again, there, it's uh, all about the team as well. Surround yourself with people who can do things smarter and faster than you. Uh, delegate. You need to trust the team. Uh, it's also sometimes uh, just simple hard work, you know, putting in the extra hours, to be honest. Right. And, but I, I've learned a, along the way that there's a lot of ways to, to become more efficient. Now, we've talked a lot about success until now. Failure on occasion, uh, A, is inevitable, but also can be... Uh, a springboard to success. Would you would you be willing to share with us one of your failures, if any, and 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 what you got out of it? Uh, some failures. I mean, I lost business partners along the way, which is not always. Uh, it's never fun, actually. So sometimes you look back and you think maybe we could have done it differently. Maintaining the culture is 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 one of the. I'm not going to call it bigger failures, but one of the things I struggled with after we did uh, a few acquisitions, because then the culture changes. Right. Uh, reinventing then your your management team and trying to maintain the culture you think you need to be successful, and uh, and I, I've I've learned myself then to develop myself, let things go, learn from the past, live in the day, and look to the future. But it's an ongoing journey of uh, reinventing yourself and learning. But maintaining culture, especially in a scale-up, right. is pretty uh, difficult. But yeah, we've been there. So uh, sometimes successful and sometimes less successful. Jordi, at this stage of your career, you've been successful on many fronts, including, uh, I think, on the financial front. What drives you today? You could probably be somewhere in, you know, in some exotic place sailing. Why, why are you showing up for work every day? I would like to learn and still develop myself. That's one. I really like to add value, uh, which is the reason why I invest. 
It's not a financial reason uh, because if I get three, four percent on, you know, what I kind of have, then I'm happy as well. Um, so I really get uh, a thrill when I see someone developing him or herself, making steps. Uh, there's been a lot of people now financially well off because of the sale uh, of uh, one of the companies we just sold, which I like as well, because now they're able to do other stuff. And I like to touch uh, as many lives as possible and giving people or children or people other opportunities, which they normally would have probably not gotten, which is also the driver behind uh, the charity I started, right. IT for Kids. In fact, I wanted to ask you, because you're also involved in a number of not-for-profit activities, but I think IT for Kids is particularly dear to your heart, in part because you, I guess you started it and you're continuing to develop it. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about it and, and also, uh, again, tell us your passion for it. Yeah, it, it was, um, there was a news article where I read that uh, there were 400,000 kids not being able to do sports in the Netherlands, which is a first world economy. That was one. Uh, I did my first deal in 2014 where I took quite a lot of money off the table and I thought, whoa, what am I going to do with this money? And then when I looked backwards, I realized that my parents took two jobs uh, in the normal day and in the evening so I could do sports and I could go study and I could buy those, you know, soccer shoes. And then I realized that there were a few kids in that time who suddenly disappeared because their shoes were, you know, torn down. But when I was young, I didn't realize that. So those three things came together, and that was the, the start for IT for Kids. And uh, I really realized, also with the people I work with in some of my other companies, that some kids, you know, they're two, three, four steps behind because they grow up in a different area or because their parents are not educated or because they come from a different background, speak another language and just came to the Netherlands. And giving these people opportunities is, uh, yeah, that makes my uh, heart tick. And uh, that's what I really like to do. And the charity does this specifically for kids uh, with sports. So it's uh, kids with, a, I call it, they're two, three steps behind. It could be financially, it could be because they're, you know, uh, have a handicap, uh, a disability. Uh, it could be anything, but that's what we try to do. Jordi, last question. And this is the question not from the president of IMD, but from the leadership professor. Let's assume uh, you and I started together in the Marine Corps a little bit less than 30 years ago. Yeah. And somehow uh, we lose touch with one another. And, and, and so I stumbled onto you, Jordi Cole, 2021. What difference would I notice between uh, Jordi 1983, 1993, sorry, and, and Jordi 2021? I think as a, as a young man, uh, you think you know it all. So when you get older, you try uh, to figure out or you figure out that you don't know it all. Actually, you don't know a lot. <laughs> Maybe you don't know anything. That's what I sometimes say. So I'm very intrigued now to, to learn and discover, okay, I'm saying this, but am I really right? So I think that is one of the big differences. Okay. Um, the other thing is I probably got uh, more calmer, uh, more patient. Uh, if you're young, you want to have results quickly. Uh, my first three jobs were probably a year and then I wanted to have another job, you know, a bigger job. And nowadays I know that you need to be in a certain role a certain time to really add value. It's not going to help. You're not going to, you can, you can do stuff in a year, but you know, you can do more stuff in three or four or five years in a company. So is this something that where you're consciously making time for your own development? Yeah. I'm, or I'm, it just I'm, happens because some leaders say, 
eh, I don't do this consciously. It just happens. It's it's both. It's both. So I I I, I always say, or my wife would say, I'm pretty occupied in my head. So I'm always thinking uh, and reflecting, uh, and then I'm kind of off. Yeah, you're there, but you're not really there. And I do plan. Uh, I used to plan trips to Switzerland. Now it's to Spain, where I sit in the garden. And I know while sitting there and reading a book, I get a lot of ideas. And then you put the book away and you reflect. So I do that. Do that deliberately nowadays as well. But I've always been, I think, pretty you know occupied. What I call in my head with looking backwards and thinking about what did I do wrong? How can I change this? Jordi, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your candor. Thank you also for your insights. Thank you again for your time. It was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Jordi Cole as much as I did. To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.